Welcome to Cornerstone, where we are seeing lives changed through the truth of God's Word and the love of God's people. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from our lead pastor, Daniel Ostendorf. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. We're getting ready to launch into a series looking at First and Second Peter, and perhaps, although all of us are grateful for God's mercy, in Peter we see somebody who knew in a tangible, clear way the mercy of God. If you might remember, Peter was the one who said, I will never deny you, and then what does he do? He, he denies Jesus three times on the very night of his death, and Jesus restores him in his gracious mercy. And Peter becomes a leading figure in the early church, as we'll unpack throughout the next few weeks. Well, in this series, as Jeremy mentioned, we're going to have a verse that I want to challenge all of us to, to commit to memory and, and to sit in, to allow kind of to delve deeply into our hearts and our minds, to, to root itself in us about the power of Christ's resurrection, of what God the Father has done, about this eternal hope we have. There is so much packed into these three verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A couple of different ways I want to invite you to walk through this series with us. One is we're going to have a page on the website where you can watch a lyric video for this, where you can download the MP3 if you want to listen to the car with your kids, um, and a couple of and other things. Another thing we're going to do, uh, Lauren and I wanted to introduce you guys to something we've done over the years. Uh, so the church we just came from would preach through a book. We spent like 42 weeks in Romans or something. It was a long time. I won't do that to you anytime soon, probably. Um, but anyways, what we found really helpful was uh, the ESV has put out these, what they call scripture journals. I'll just show you to them real quick. Uh, on one side of the page is the, the passage from Scripture, and on the other side is a page for notes. And so every time we would start a new book, we would go buy these from the local Mardell's or Christian bookstore, and then every time we went to church, these became the place we took our notes for the sermon. And it was a place where we could go back to and say, okay, God, what did you, what did you share, show me last week, and what was that thing I was going to work on and think about and pray through? Um, so we wanted to introduce you to this. So what we've done is, is we've bought... Um, a bunch back here. Now, a bunch of them are already gone, so we'll just have to buy some more. Uh, but there's two versions. Uh, this is my version. It's, it's the boring version, Lauren would tell you. All it has is text and lines. I like it. It's orderly. It's, it's sorted. Uh, this is Lauren's version. It's much prettier, she would tell you. Uh, it has no lines, so lots of room for creativity. And it has these really cool kind of gilded artistic letters. So I know you guys have different systems. Some of you take notes on your phone, on your iPad. Some of you have notebooks that you do. Some of you have Bibles specifically meant to journal on the side. If you don't have a way to intentionally walk through these books with us over the next few months, I want to invite you to grab a journal, or one of these at the back. And when we run out, we'll order some more. I think Team Lauren is winning right now. So anybody on Team Daniel uh, could help a brother out. That would be great. Um, so just want you to know, those are back there for us. My hope is that as we open First and Second Peter, as we walk through it slowly, that we're going to grow, we're going to be challenged, we're going to be encouraged. I think oftentimes as Christians, we can look around at the world around us and say, wow, it's getting harder and harder to be a follower of Christ. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. He was writing to people who found it harder and harder to be followers of Christ faithfully. 
And so we're going to find out what did he say to them, and as a result, what does he have to say to us? What I love about the story of Peter is that we see so much happen in him that God's done in our own life. Last week, we looked at Easter, and we considered what it meant to see. You might remember that we, we looked at seeing and noticing, seeing and understanding, or seeing with a, a depth of understanding or curiosity, seeing with greater understanding, and then seeing and believing. And, and we looked at Mary, and we looked at Peter, and we looked at John. And you might remember at the end of the story or the end of the passage we read, uh, Peter has seen the tomb, but he doesn't yet understand, and he walks away puzzled, wondering what in the world just happened. And, and of course, as we know, he will meet the risen, resurrected Lord just a couple of days later. And so he does meet, and he figures out what happened, but you can tell things are still kind of bubbling in his head. When we get to the end of John, if you read John 21 last Sunday with us, uh, we find Peter not out preaching the gospel, but back in his fishing boat. And we find Jesus at the shore around a charcoal fire. And one of the most beautiful things, well, John does a lot of beautiful things in his gospel. That charcoal fire that Jesus prepares fish around that morning is the exact same word about the charcoal fire back where Peter denied Christ. And so in this beautiful poetic moment, Peter, who had denied Christ around a charcoal fire outside a high priest's house, now meets the risen Lord around a fire next to the Sea of Galilee where he'd first been called to follow Christ. And Jesus three times asks him the question, Peter, do you love me more than these? It's here in John 21. And, and Peter says, of course I do. You know I do. And Jesus three times responds, then tend my sheep, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep. We see this as, as the restoration of Peter, who had denied Christ three times, now affirms his love for Christ three times. And, and, and what happens right after that again, is a beautiful bookmark to the beginning of Peter's journey with Christ, is Jesus says, follow me. But what's really important, and if you read John 21 with us last week, you knew those were not easy words. That was not an easy invitation. Because between the three questions, do you love me more of these, and follow me, is this really hard couple of verses. Where Jesus says, Peter, you will be led where you don't want to go, taken by people you don't want to take you to do things you don't want done to you. He warns him that following him will be a difficult path. And he may have kind of wussed out last time at Jesus' trial, but Peter, if you follow me now, it will not be easy. And yet on the heels of that, Peter says, I will. You see, it's no easy invitation to follow Christ. Peter had discovered that the hard way. Peter came to know that when he was martyred for his faith in Rome under the emperor Nero. At least that's what we, as far as we know. What happens is, is this Peter who had denied Christ, who had been restored and experienced Christ's mercy, who had been invited to follow Christ, ends up facing a very difficult next 25 years before his death. And what we're going to look at today is the first time the church faces persecution and opposition. And the reason I want to start here in Acts today is I don't want you to say, okay, well, we saw Peter over here. He denied Christ. He was fishing. Jesus restored him. All right, let's jump to the end of his life. And now all of a sudden he's an authority on boldly preaching the gospel in the face of opposition, like those two don't connect. And so today what we're going to do is we're actually going to go to Acts 4, and we're going to look at the first time the church faced opposition and see how Peter handles it. How does he respond? Will you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready to dive in? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you for the time we've already spent this morning 
not only worshiping you for who you are, but meditating on, on your word that's living and breathing that changed our life. Father, perhaps I'm the only one in this room who feels like my mind is going in a bazillion different directions this morning. Um, so Lord, I just I come before you this morning and um, I just recognize, Lord, that I am quick to get distracted. I am quick to, to think about everything else. And I'm not so quick to lay those things at your feet. And so, Lord, for anyone else in this room that finds themselves in a similar place, Lord, we come before you and we lay the things that weigh on our heart and minds uh, at your feet. For these next 30 minutes, we want to sit with you in your word. We can't do anything about those things that worry and concern us. And yet the only great God who can do everything, we can trust you with him. So, Father, as we dive into your word, we ask that we leave things at your feet that need to be at your feet, that we might hear from you. Father, thank you for the gift of this time together. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're diving into Acts 4. Here's the context. Jesus has ascended to heaven, uh, and as he promised, he has sent the Holy Spirit to his apostles. This Holy Spirit is going to do lots of things. If you read John with us, that, that Jesus promised, he's going to give them the words to say. He's going to give them boldness. He's going to counsel them and be their guide. He's going to do a lot, and right off the bat, next to at Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit descend on the disciples, and the gospel is proclaimed. The people who had once been fearful disciples huddled in a room because they didn't know what would happen to them as Jesus lay in the tomb, now are boldly proclaiming a resurrected Jesus in Jerusalem under the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we see is over 3,000 people come to know Jesus just in that one day in Acts 2. And if I had been writing the story, I probably would have stayed there, the big picture. But Luke doesn't. Luke then turns in Acts 3 and 4 to two specific individuals, John and Peter. How appropriate. We've just read John's gospel, and we're about to dive into Peter's letters. Let's take a look at these two disciples who we're listening to, who we're hearing from, who were some of Jesus' closest disciples, and see how they handle opposition. By chapter 3 and 4, there's a specific episode that's going to kind of dictate what's happening here. Peter and John had walked up to the temple to worship, and, and they'd walked in through the gate called Beautiful, and to the side was a man who was lame, a, a beggar asking for money. And if it's anything like the beggars that I, I've gone by in Africa and around the world and here in the United States, even you know, driving off the freeway, they don't look you in the eye, right? They, they might look at the floor or look over your shoulder. Somewhere, they don't want to look you in the eyes. They're asking because it's, it's a pretty humbling thing to ask for money. And what I love in this passage in Acts 3, um, sorry, I think I've gotten ahead of myself here. What I love about this passage in Acts 3, and we'll pick up here, is that Peter says, look at me. But let's hold off on that for a second. All right, let's dive into Acts 4, 5 through 13. Sorry about that. All right, on the next day, uh, we're in verse 5 in, in chat, Acts 4. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The heart of this passage is really Peter's speech in verses 8 through 12. And I want to get there eventually, but what I'd like to do is eat it or kind of come at it the way my kids eat a burrito from both ends. So we're going to come at the front and the back and we're going to end up in the middle. So let's start with verse 13 there at the very end. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The they here refers to the religious leaders mentioned in verses 5 and 6. The rulers, the elders, and the scribes. From what we can tell and what scholars can put together, these three groups are likely the, the, the makings of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had over 70 members, 71-ish or so or more members. But then we also get this addition that it's not just the members of the Sanhedrin, it's also members of the high priest family. This is no small crowd that John and Peter are brought before. In addition to the sheer numbers of the, those questioning them, you may actually have recognized some of the names of those involved. Take a look at 5 and 6. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all, were who, of the high, all who were of the high priestly family. If you recognize names Annas and Caiaphas, it's because these are the same two men that led the charges against Christ that got him crucified. The disciples find themselves not only standing before the Sanhedrin, but standing before the very men who called for the death of Christ. There's an interesting thing here, and this is just a historical side note for those of you who love history. Charles, I'm looking at you. Um, So you'll notice that it says Annas the high priest. He's actually not the high priest right now. Uh, Caiaphas is the high priest. And so if you ever look through the Gospels, you'll be like, wait, Annas is the high priest, Caiaphas is the high priest, what's going on? And, and if, you're, if somebody's really lazy, they could say, well, look, you can't trust your Gospels. They can't get straight who the high priest is. But actually, what they don't realize is that this is one of those details that if this was made up, we would never get. If someone was writing about Caiaphas and Annas, and they were writing, say, 100 years later, say, 200 years later, they would never mention they were both the high priest. Because the only person who's the official high priest at this time is Caiaphas. The Romans had kicked Annas out. And so I just want to encourage you that if someone says, hey, you can't really trust this. Look, your gospel writers can't get it straight. No, actually, if this was written during the time, this is exactly what we would see. Because the Jews still considered Annas the high priest. He was the patriarch of the high priestly family. Yes, Caiaphas was the official high priest, which is why in the trial of Jesus, he goes to Annas first, right, the patriarch. Then he gets handed to Caiaphas because Caiaphas is the only one who can send him to the Romans. But there are details here that we only get if it's written in the time of Jesus from the people who knew what was going on then. All right, so these are the same members who killed Jesus. It's a rather intimidating group. Uh, And what's surprising is this group who's well-educated, powerful, used to being in charge, is taken aback by the boldness of Peter and John. We'll see this boldness throughout the book of Acts. It's an answer to prayer for the Holy Spirit to empower and embolden his people. It's amazing to see throughout the book of Acts what God will do with one person willing to be powered by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel of good news. Just so we don't miss this, though, I want to hit something home. Luke makes a point to emphasize that Peter and John aren't wowing the Sanhedrin with their Toastmaster skills. They didn't have a terrific college speech professor. They weren't just in awe of the fact that these men had been really, really well-trained. In fact, in verse 13, if you'll remember, we get this comment. They were uneducated, common men. 
Whether it was by the way they looked, by the way they talked, or just by their story, the people knew these are not us. These are blue-collar guys speaking to a white-collar crowd. I want to stop here because if we're going to look at Peter's letters for the next few months, I want us to understand who Peter was. So Peter grew up in Bethsaida, uh, up there on the top northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he grew up, uh, a fishing village along the sea. He grew up probably in a fishing family, most likely, because that was the skill he had. And he somewhere along the lines partnered with John and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, in a fishing business. Peter and John had known each other for a long time. In fact, their relationships predated Christ's invitation to follow him. Well, in Mark's gospel and in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, we get an indication that at some point, we're not sure when, uh, Peter moves from Bethsaida over to Capernaum, the larger fishing village of the day on the northern coast of Galilee. And there he's married and he meets Jesus. And you might remember from chapter 5 of Luke, the call of Peter. It's a pretty miraculous moment. Peter and his crew have been out all night fishing and they return with nothing in the boat, right? I don't know if you've ever had those days where you just felt like you got nothing done at work. That was one of these nights for them. They're the most defeating days for me. And, and they've returned, they're defeated, they're discouraged, they're exhausted. And this itinerant preacher is on the shore and says, hey, can I use your boat to teach? And Jesus climbs on the boat uh, and, and Jesus teaches the crowd. And then he turns to the fishermen who are exhausted and tired and says, Peter, push out and throw your net overboard. And, and Peter, being the experienced fisherman, I'm sure in his head said, who do you think you are? Like, you're a teacher, I'm the fisherman, I know what to do here. But being a good Jew, he was also very reverent towards the teachers of the day. And so reluctantly, he agrees. He casts the net over, and we get the miraculous catch of fish. That is Peter's introduction to Jesus. And after this, Peter falls at Jesus' feet, confessing his doubt and his lack of faith in Christ. It's at this point that Jesus invites him to follow me. From this incredible beginning, Peter goes on to see Jesus do so many other amazing things. Jesus heals Peter's sick mother-in-law, Peter is there when Jairus' daughter is healed by Christ. Peter will be there at Jesus' transfiguration, and on goes the list. It's Peter who asks Jesus, can I walk to you on the water? It's Peter who is the first to confess that Jesus is, is the true Messiah, the one sent by God. But it's also Peter that rebu- is rebuked by Jesus, get behind me, Satan. If you ever felt like in your, your walk with the Lord that you've got highs and low moments, I think Peter could relate He had moments where he had made great decisions, and he had moments where he made terrible decisions, and he gets called out for it. It's Peter that swears he'll never deny Jesus, and then he does it three times in a way that all four gospel member (laughs) writers mention it. There was no wiggling out of this one. Hey, John, could you leave it out of your gospel? I know we're buddies. Wink, wink. Could you just, yeah. He doesn't, right? He can't shirk that. Peter is among those who fall asleep in the garden. And it's John who tells us that it was Peter who sliced off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant in the garden when Jesus was arrested. This is Peter. Uh, Peter's a a blue-collar fisherman turned follower. He's no trained scholar. He's not a speaker. He's not a saint. He doesn't have his life together. He's just trying to figure out what it looks like to faithfully follow Christ. And he does it imperfectly. He is, as those gather that day, an uneducated common man. An uneducated common man empowered by the Holy Spirit with boldness in the words to say. The reason that Peter and John find themselves before this august body of, body of religious leaders is because another man's life had been changed by Jesus. Take a look at verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? 
This is a reference to what happens in Acts 3. It's an incredible moment that I encourage you to go read this week. Uh, as I said, Peter walks through and, and, and heals this man who has been lame. And, um, oh, this is the story that I only got halfway through. Let me pick up where I left off. All right, so Jesus is walking into the temple. He sees this lame man, this man who has been lame for as long as we can tell. And, and probably like most beggars, he's not looking Peter in the eye. He's looking at the ground, and Peter says, look at me. And the man looks up at Peter. This is probably a very awkward moment. Um, If you've ever been around cities or or communities or cultures where there's lots of beggars, oftentimes beggars are shamed. And so perhaps in this shamed culture, the beggar thought, oh, great, here's another reprimand. Here's another person telling me I shouldn't be here next to the temple gate. Here's another person telling me that I should get my life together. And instead, what does Peter do? Peter says, look at me. And Peter says these words, I have no money, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That, man, that day, the man was asking for money like he probably had done many a day, and he got so much more than he could have imagined. On this day, because a follower of Christ met him, noticed him, and spoke the power of Jesus' name into his life, he got so much more than he could have wished for. It brings to mind for me the time where four friends take a paralyzed friend and take him to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you heal him? And you might remember this. It's the funny, well, it's not the funniest story, but it's kind of the oddest story. They bring this guy in, and they have to end up cutting a hole through the roof, and he drops there in front of Jesus. And Jesus, who clearly knew what they were getting at, like, heal this guy. We want him to walk. says, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders there are like, what are you doing? Like, you can't do that. That's something God does. This is blasphemy. And, and Scripture tells us that Jesus, knowing the intent of their heart, said, just so you know that I am the Son of God and I can forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. The same words, almost identical to the guy here in Acts, 4, Acts 3. And what I love about that is, is Jesus, yes, could heal this guy, but what Jesus cared about more than that was his salvation. And, and what we're about to see in Acts 4 is that, yes, Peter, in the name of Christ, healed this guy, but he is about to make it clear why. It wasn't just so he could walk again. It was so he could proclaim the name of Christ. Well, this lame man's immediate response is to leap and praise God. And, and as you can imagine, if you're among the thousands who've walked through uh, that gate and seen this man, you're like, wait, hold on. Wait, is that him? Like, I know that guy. Why, what's going on? And, and so they gather around Peter, and we're, we, we hear that a crowd of over 5,000 gather, and he begins to proclaim what had happened. Peter takes the opportunity to, the, to address the people And he tells them that the man was healed in the name of Jesus, the one the people had handed over to Pilate and killed, but God had raised from the dead. Acts 3, 14 through 15. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Peter goes on to call the people to repent of their sins. He tells them that Jesus was sent as the answer to God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to bless all families through them. And as verse 4 of chapter 4 notes, over 5,000 people come to believe in Christ that day. A man was healed. Peter took the opportunity to say this is how it happened in his name. Peter seized the moment to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Church, I have a question for us. Do we seize the moments where God does something awesome in our lives to proclaim the gospel? Or are we quick to to kind of dismiss and say, oh yeah, God's good. All right, let's move on. I don't really want to talk about it. Or hey, God did this really cool thing. Yeah, Jesus is great. You should go to church. Or do we seize that moment and say, let me tell you what God did in my life 
Let me show you how he showed up in the midst of hardship or, or how he showed up in an amazing way. This is a freebie. One of my favorite books is God's Smuggler by Brother Andrew. And Brother Andrew says, we serve a king who does things in a kingly way. And he gives story after story of how God just shows up in awesome ways. Do we take those moments to praise God and point people to the one, the name, the power that has done these great things? Well, as you can imagine, the local leaders are none too happy, right? They thought they killed Jesus. They thought his name was gone. And all of a sudden, there's a, a big crowd that's gathered on the Temple Mountain, and a man's been healed, and, and they want to know more. So they sweep in, they arrest John and Peter, and they detain them overnight. And that's what verse 2 and 3 say. There's this great line, right? Verse 2, here we go. Greatly annoyed. I mean, we can sort of appreciate that they're greatly annoyed. Like, hey, we, we thought we dealt with this. Why is this popping back up? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were arrested and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. All right. Well, it's to these events, the healing of a lame man, the proclamation of a resurrected Jesus, the call to repent, the teaching that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that the question in verse 7 was directed. What a challenging moment for John and Peter. They're standing before this group of at least 70 strong, uh, the, the group that, that killed Christ, that sent him, effectively sent him to the cross. And here they are, two blue-collar, uneducated men. And what we find out from verse 14 is that the healed, the healed man, the man who has been healed, is standing there with them. What will they do? Will they hem and haw? Will they, will they weasel their way out of it? Oh, okay, we'll just keep quiet. It was no big deal. Uh, will, they, will they get scared? And will they say, you know what? God's good. We just don't know about this Jesus thing. No, instead they press into the risk, they press into the danger. The question for us is what would we say? How would we respond in such a situation? Let's take a look at how Peter responded in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And here he, he proclaims, we see Jesus' promise re- fulfilled from Matthew 10. Take a look at this. Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Notice that Jesus says it's not if you're handed over, it's when you're handed over. And so there's two promises that get fulfilled. Actually, go on back for me. It, it, there's two promises fulfilled in this passage. You know, maybe, maybe you're a disciple or, or maybe you're walking with Christ and you're like, ah, Jesus, I just don't know. Like, you said you were coming back soon and, and Jesus, you said your life was easy and, and I don't know. Like, are these promises fulfilled? Let me give you two that are fulfilled. Jesus here says you will be persecuted for your faith and when you are, I will send my spirit to give you the words. And so Peter and John find themselves in this situation. They find themselves persecuted just as their, their Savior said and they find the spirit has come to them. What's interesting is Paul writes the exact same things to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter, facing persecution, finds Jesus' words trustworthy and true. Church, do we recognize, do we accept, are we comfortable with, are we embracing that our faith will bring opposition? 
Or do we try to live a faith in such a way that we minimize opposition? Do we actually sort of try to, to hem and haw, to, to minimize, to, to water down things just so the world might like us a little bit more, so things might be a little more comfortable? Do we dodge, do we give half-hearted answers to keep the peace with the world around us? Are we willing to be bold for Christ? Furthermore, if we're willing to be bold for Christ, do we stand on God's promise that when we are and we find ourselves in a moment where we're facing opposition or we're called out for our faith, that the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say. It's not an easy life that we're called to as Christ followers, but one lived in the power and strength of the Spirit that the world needs. It needs to hear us boldly proclaim their salvation in Christ alone. And so Peter, believing and with the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaims this boldly in verses 8 through 12. It says, rulers of the people and elders... We are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. And then verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone you rejected. There is no salvation in anyone else. Verse 12, for there is no other name under heaven given which men must be saved. What's really interesting here is Peter's being asked about this healing thing, but he doesn't let the conversation stop there. He takes the opportunity to point people to Christ, to the gospel. Notice Peter's bold use of words. Jesus Christ. Jesus, the promised Messiah. You religious leaders may not agree that Jesus was the Messiah. You may have gone to great lengths to kill him to prove that he wasn't the Messiah. But he was, and just so there's no confusion, because Jesus was a pretty common name, this is Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah from Nazareth. Let's not make any confusion over who I'm speaking of. And then furthermore, not just Jesus, the Messiah from Nazareth, but Jesus, the Messiah from Nazareth, whom you killed. This is the Jesus whose name has healed this man. This Jesus was the stone you rejected. You'll notice back in chapter 3, that Peter also called, called out the crowd. It's a wonderful, beautiful moment for us that we need to pay attention to because of our contemporary moment. Here in our world, we want to blame our leaders. It's all their fault. If those in power didn't abuse power, we would be great. Like the rest of us got our lives together. It's our leaders that have it wrong. And what I love about this moment is Peter says, no, 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 no. To a crowd of 5,000, you killed Jesus. To a, a group of powerful leaders at, at 70 plus, you killed Jesus. You all did it. You're all guilty. It is not just the rulers who get called out for their role in the death of Christ. Peter, in verse 12, verse 11, mentions builders. This idea of a cornerstone. It comes from Psalm 118. We looked at it on Palm Sunday two weeks ago. In it, there was this sense among Jews as they sang this song going up to Jerusalem that they were the cornerstone that they were the promised people who were going to bring this good news to all people and be a blessing to all nations. And they, as this small group of people, had been rejected by the builders, by Egypt, by Assyria, by Babylon, by Persia, by the Romans. They were the stone that had been rejected by the builders of their world. And Peter takes that, that they've been singing, that they know by heart, and he flips it on its head. And he says, uh-uh, you don't get to look out there and call them the bad guys. You're the builders. You're the ones that are supposed to be shepherding your people. And you guess what you've done as the builders. You've rejected the true cornerstone. Now, the idea of a cornerstone, just to use the stage, is literally a 
stone in the corner of a building. It's the first stone you laid, and the masons would be really careful to get that 90-degree angle really sharp uh, to, to clean that stone up because it set the tone for the rest of the house. If you had a cornerstone that was off just a little bit, your walls were off a lot. If your stone was not strong in the way it needed to be, the wall began to crumble. Your cornerstone was the most pivotal stone in the entire building. It's what set everything else. It was the defining line. It was the point of reference. It it, it set the tone for what moved ahead. And Peter is saying, the very stone you should have chosen as this, as the cornerstone that would make sense of all prophecy, all of God's word, you rejected. Now, what I love is we see Peter's heart here. Peter could have stopped there and just said, see, I'm just going to point the finger at you. I'm going to call you out and make you feel really, really bad for what you did. Peter doesn't. Peter shares the gospel with him. Peter speaks to the very people responsible for Christ's brutal death and suffering and says, I want you to know the name by which you can be saved. Yeah, you missed it, but that's not the end of the story. Church, is that our heart for the people who have hurt us? I feel like we live in a world in which we put up walls, right? If, if our spouse has hurt us, we put up a wall. If our boss has hurt us, we put up a wall. If our parents have hurt us, we put up a wall. If those in leadership over us have put up a wall we, or have hurt us, we put up a wall. And, and we don't care about them, right? We are victims, and you have victimized us. That's what our world says, that that's an okay place to be. And what Paul, or sorry, Peter is saying here is, no, 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 no. I am not a victim. I am redeemed by the risen Christ, and I want you to know that Christ It's a wonderful apologetic for our world that needs to know that salvation is for all and it's a painful challenge for us that those places where we put up walls and we feel like, nope, they have done something so bad to me, they don't deserve salvation. Peter says, hold up, you can't do that because salvation's for them too. Well, Paul boldly proclaims healing and salvation are found in no one else but Jesus in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, we we read 13, we didn't read 14, so I'm cheating a little bit here, but did you notice what happens in verses 13 and 14? This large group of educated, powerful religious leaders are astonished. Peter speaks boldly, though uneducated, and the man who stands before them who was lame is healed. In the following verses, you'll see that the rulers attempt to silence them, to intimidate them. Stop talking about this guy, Jesus. If you don't, we're coming after you. And I love, and I just couldn't like give this up. I couldn't preach this whole text, but I couldn't give up this opportunity. Acts 4.19, check it out. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's one of the most beautiful rhetorical questions in the Bible. The leaders there gathered knew what the answer was. Of course they should listen to God first before listening to the crowd. But I do wonder if there's not a tendency for us to listen to religious leaders, to our parents who who would discourage us from doing things God's called us to do. Don't share your faith. That's awkward. Don't share your faith. People will think you're weird. Um... You know, you you probably shouldn't do that. You shouldn't serve in the church. You shouldn't go off on a missions trip. You shouldn't give your life to Christ in a full-hearted, wholehearted way. And we sometimes listen to those voices rather than the voice of God. And I think for us, the word here from Peter and John is really important. Who are we listening to? The voice of God or the voice of man? Church, like Peter and John, are we committed to speaking of what we know? 
Are we committed to speaking about what God has done and Christ has done in our life, of what we've seen and heard in our salvation? Or do we live under the fear of man? Do we act out of a a healthy sense that we have to do what's right before God regardless of what men think? Or do we care far too much about what men think? Do we join Peter in proclaiming that salvation is in Christ alone? Furthermore, do we really believe it? Do we believe it so much that we want the world to know that, that we look around the world and our hearts break because they're chasing everything else they can to be saved? See, the reality is our world, including many, unfortunately, in our churches, Offer alternative after alternative after alternative. We often think, okay, this whole salvation thing with Jesus, that's for eternity, but right now I gotta figure this life out. I gotta save myself. I gotta figure out how to heal my life. I gotta figure out how to do it. And maybe we do it through education. Maybe we do it through pursuing a work or a position that that we think will bring us satisfaction or or make our life whole. Perhaps we pursue it through money and chasing wealth. Perhaps we pursue it by chasing power. If you're like me, and this one hits close to home, perhaps you think somehow understanding yourself better through personality tests, whether it's the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or whatever, that's going to be the way you finally figure out life. So way too much of my life paying attention to those things. Maybe we follow the Disney promise that we're going to find happiness and wholeness and salvation in our one true love. And then when that doesn't work out, we're disappointed and we think maybe we missed the boat. Maybe we we think we're going to find happiness by just doing what feels good. You see, all these things we've watched our friends and our families and our neighbors and our world chase, hoping that it somehow might fix the hopelessness, might fix the despair, the loneliness, might fix the meaninglessness and the lack of purpose they find their days bringing. Maybe they think this finally will give me the peace and purpose I crave. Maybe these will save my life from a life that I feel like a daily victim to my own choices or the choices of others. Maybe finally my life will be what it could be if I'll just accomplish these things. And yet we know enough to know that none of these avenues will lead to what we're longing for. Nearly every time I've seen a friend walk away from the historic Christian faith, it's because their gaze shifted. They were following Christ and then they became unsettled. Maybe Christ didn't fulfill a prayer of theirs or a desire or a wish of theirs. And so all of a sudden they begin looking to a different cornerstone, a a different thing that they think will set things right. So maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a new spouse. Maybe it's an affair with someone who will finally speak encouragement and affirmation in a way their spouse stopped doing long ago. Maybe it's someone who pursued opportunities of notoriety and fame because they were tired of feeling like a nobody. Maybe it's those who chase wealth and position because they fear that poverty of their upbringing or they fear that the words that those who should have encouraged them spoke. You'll never amount to anything. Church, if we're honest, those outside these walls aren't the only ones who deal with that temptation of moving our gaze from the cornerstone to something else in this world that might satisfy us in an easier way away without persecution, away without opposition, away without difficulty. How often have we found our gaze drifting from Christ to a salary point? If only I could make this much more money, life would be easier. If only I could have this job, if only I could have this relationship, if only I could have this opportunity, then my life would finally have peace and contentment and satisfaction. That's looking for salvation elsewhere rather than Christ. 
Where have we been prone to reject Jesus as the cornerstone of our lives, that one that sets everything else straight, that determines the decisions we make, and we've chosen a different stone that's easier to put in that place? For every one of us who have tried to build a life apart from Jesus as our cornerstone, our true north, our plumb line, our reference and our truth, the truth, and for a world, let's be honest, that wakes up every morning trying to find that salvation and that healing that they long for, Peter's words are for them and for us in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name name under heaven given among, among men by which we must be saved. And the beautiful piece of Greek here at the end, that word saved is also healed. And so as Peter and John stand before this group and they look at this healed man, there is no other name by which this man is healed and there is no other name by which you are saved in this room other than the name of Jesus Christ. So dear friends, where are you today? Have you rejected Jesus? Maybe you've been religious your whole life like the Pharisees. Maybe you looked at Jesus and you're like, oh, nope, uh, you don't fit the mold. You're not really the cornerstone I think you need to be in order for my life to be what I want it to be. Maybe somehow I don't like what you call me to. I don't like this idea that if I follow you, Jesus, life will be difficult. And so you are religious, but you've rejected him as your true cornerstone. Or, or maybe you did. You, you accepted Christ as your Savior. He became the cornerstone, the litmus test for everything that you did. And then life got difficult. Life got uncomfortable. Life got hard. Life got disappointing. And I thought, well, man, maybe if I swap this stone out for this other one, life will be a little more enjoyable. It'll be a little bit easier. Maybe I'll be a little more encouraged. And, and so you took that cornerstone, and, and maybe it's still in your building somewhere, but it's not the one that determines the decisions you're making. Perhaps you're different. Perhaps you never knew there was a cornerstone that would line up the rest of your life. Uh, perhaps you never realized that the God that created the world who knows you, who knit you together in your womb, knows how life is supposed to be lived, loved you enough to die for you, and wants to be the cornerstone in your life. Wants to say, let me be that one that everything else bases off of, that, found, that straightens everything out, that makes life make sense. Yes, it won't be easy, but it is true. Let me be the way, the truth, and the life. Well, regardless of where you find yourself, Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, is alive because God raised him from the dead, and he is the only name by which we may be saved and healed. It is the only name in which we can find hope. And he is calling to me, to you, to us, and to our world today, just as he did through Peter, that crowd of 5,000, and to those assembled in the Sanhedrin that day, to follow him. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Perhaps today you need to believe in Jesus. You need to truly believe that he alone is the one that will satisfy you. He alone is the one that will save you. You need to replace the cornerstone you've been using to figure out this life with the true cornerstone. Perhaps today you need to fix your gaze once again upon your Savior and not some false hope of a cornerstone you thought might make you happier. This is the message Peter boldly proclaimed through the power of the Holy Spirit in the face of opposition. It is the message that we are called through the power of the Holy Spirit in the face of opposition to proclaim to the world around us, to one another and to ourselves each and every day that salvation, hope, and wholeness are found in Christ alone. As we prepare to dive into First and Second Peter, may we fix our eyes on the only one who can save us, our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, 
And as we walk through these letters with Peter, may he help us know what it means to boldly follow after him, keep our gaze fixed on the cornerstone, and proclaim that news to the needy world. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to to open it together, to hear from it. Lord, I just am struck this morning um, by the change in Peter's life. This disciple who found himself back in his boat even after the resurrection, that you had to invite him back to follow you, Jesus. And as he did, you empowered him through your Holy Spirit. And he did awesome things to speak boldly for you in the face of opposition. Father, it's our feeling that life is not going to get easier as Christians in the years ahead. And so, Father, may we return to you if we've lost our gaze, if we've returned back to the ways that had us tied before. Lord, may we return to you if we're finding wholeness and happiness and and satisfaction elsewhere other than in Christ. And then, Jesus, we just pray as we walk through your word in these next couple months together, would you give us the strength and the courage empowered by the Holy Spirit to live boldly for you declaring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world who desperately needs it. Pray all these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.